Once I had a foundation in sobriety, I found myself really acting out sexually a lot. I developed this pattern where I would meet a woman and become infatuated with her. And I would pour on the charm. And then like once she fell for me, then, you know, I would just ghost. Not only was I not treating them the way that I want to be treated, I was actually treating them specifically the way I most fear being treated myself. I promised myself I'm not gonna act out anymore. And I just couldn't. It was just uh, an endless cycle of shame. I started seeing a, a, a sex therapist because I felt strongly that my mission was to become the man that the love of my life deserves. Hello and welcome to Man Enough. I'm Justin Baldoni. And this is Jamie Heath from the Man Enough podcast. And today we have a beautiful episode of What's Underneath Masculinity presented by BetterHelp. If you weren't aware, every Thursday we are releasing a new episode of our beautiful partnership with the amazing YouTube channel Style Like You, where men get truly vulnerable and remove an article of clothing with every conversation. The guest on today is someone that many of us know. Remember the show Jackass? Do you remember the guy, Steve-O? You might remember him from doing some crazy out of his mind stunts. Like the guy's completely fearless. Just an incredible athlete, obviously, to do some of the stuff he was doing. But underneath all of that, and what's most important, and the reason why he's on this, is someone who was dealing with things of that nature and had the courage to do that, also had the courage to face his own demons. Now, I was a huge fan of jackass and it made me do some things that i probably in hindsight shouldn't have done especially knowing what we know about boys and men is that we're much more likely to engage in aggressive and risky behavior what's so interesting is that steve-o breaks this all down for us steve-o has been a fearless stunt performer and stand-up comedian and he's really been a household name for years and steve-o in this episode is gonna get real and vulnerable and talk about his journey through drug and sex addiction and celibacy as a healing tool. The last 15 years of sobriety, he's gonna talk about the show and what it was like for him. I think after listening to the full interview here, you are gonna fall in love with him. He's a great model for many guys who don't see themselves as feminists, but actually are in their hearts. I feel like Steve-O is a great entry point and a role model here. So if you uh, are a man or know a man that you think would be touched by this episode, um, especially men that maybe aren't regular listeners to this show, uh, I encourage you to send it to them because Steve-O really models accountability and vulnerability here. And as always, I'd love to hear what you think of this one. So you can find us on all of our social channels at We Are Man Enough. So without further ado, please enjoy this episode of What's Underneath Masculinity with our friend Steve-O. I just want to begin by just really thanking you for being here. We really appreciate it enormously because we know this isn't, well, for most people, it's not an easy ask, but I know for you, it's maybe a little bit easier. And this is why we're so excited to have you here. More difficult than one might imagine. I'm oh, going to be very self-conscious about my figure, mm, Okay, but I'm not, let, I'm not letting that hold me back. Um, can you just begin by talking about how you're feeling right now? I'm feeling like every day a new part of my body is complaining, right? Today it's my wrist. It's, it's relatively new to have um, pain and discomfort without 
an injury causing it. Mm. I hate to say this, but I feel fragile. Mm. I feel fragile because body parts are hurting me when I've done nothing to injure them. Mm. And that's very upsetting. And how do you feel about doing this interview and becoming, being in your underwear at the end and all of that? That's crazy. It's been over 10 years now since I was speaking with a mentor of mine, talking about how I have a, a fear of my deteriorating appearance um, making me unlovable. And this mentor of mine said that he had news for me, that I didn't get to where I was because I was a sex symbol. He said, nobody cares how you look, bud. Mm -hmm. And uh, I like to hang on to that, you know. I feel that I won't look as good as I once did. Mm -hmm. And that's okay, man, you know. I'm going to rock it. Can you talk a little bit about what your style says about you? Well, before I became sort of a public persona, um, I was clamoring for opportunities to wear brands from skateboarding. Mm -hmm. The whole idea around the world of skateboarding was to get sponsored. And I wasn't a very good skateboarder, but um, I just wanted to be in the skateboard videos. So I did these over-the-top stunts to try to get in the videos, and, and it worked. I ended up getting sponsored for drinking bong water, lighting myself on fire at bad guard keg parties, and uh, just kind of jumping off roofs and bridges. And uh, I was so proud of it. Like, I'd wear all my, my skate company sponsors. I don't like to be flashy in general, which I think is a super blessing because I look at some people who really care about being flashy, and then, like, they end up at a point where they're trying to uh, maintain an appearance which is beyond their means and then it's like something's got to give and that would just be a terrifying situation to be in mm -hmm. and I'm pretty grateful that I just don't even worry about it. Would you say like that you're not caring and not being flashy is like a form of humility? Um, <laughs> you got to be pretty careful when fielding questions about humility. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Um, I derive my self-esteem and my pride and all the ego stuff from what I do, not what I have. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I'm really into what I do. Mm -hmm. Like, I want people to think I'm badass. Mm -hmm. And I care about that way too much mm -hmm. to be considered humble. Makes mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Okay, can you take off your jacket? Uh, I'd love to take off my jacket. So, like, the one thing I like about cold weather is I get to wear this baby. Can you talk a little bit about the assumptions that you think people make about you based on your appearance? I've been so loud in my career doing, like, dumb, idiotic, dangerous stunts that I think it's pretty safe for most people to assume that I'm dumb and idiotic and dangerous. My father said, the world is full of dumb people who try to look smart and fall on their ass. He says, Steve, I think is actually really intelligent, but he does a great job of looking stupid. And I think that's why he's been successful. Because it was always like a really guarded secret almost that 
I wasn't so dumb. Why, why do you think that you wanted to make yourself look stupid? It was very clear to me that I was not very well equipped to keep a normal job. And I thought I was going to fail at life. I dropped out of college and I just thought, oh man, like I'm screwed. That's one thing I really loved was the video camera. And I thought, I'm going to just videotape the craziest stuff and I'm going to become a crazy famous stuntman. And that was my plan. That was my only plan. And everybody who I told this plan to felt genuinely sorry for me. Like it was just a tragedy. What a loser I was. And I, I remember feeling strongly that it sucked that I was going to be dead and more likely sooner than later. Um, but that if I really videotaped crazy enough stuff, then that video footage would outlive me and make me immortal. So the video camera was like a religion for me. This was like my afterlife. This was immortality. And I never cared if anybody uh, thought I was smart or dumb. I just wanted them to be blown away by how crazy I was. At one point, somebody asked me, why do I do the stupid things that I do? And I said, it's such a simple answer. I don't like work. I don't like school. And I want to be remembered forever, dude. We'll be right back. Welcome back to What's Underneath Masculinity. Like, I mean, it's like a very high attunement to be very aware of mortality, and it does make you live your life differently. Now, I think that our human experience is just a ridiculously cruel prank on us because we only have one instinct, which is to survive. But we've only got one guarantee, which is we won't survive. Mm -hmm. So, like, well, mm -hmm. that's a super catch-22, like, so I view the whole human experience as an exercise in finding some way to wrap your head around the fact that you're going to be dead. Mm -hmm. And I view three ways people do that. They obviously reproduce. You know, this is like a legacy. You know, I'm, I'm going to be dead, but my, my uh, bloodline carries on. And then there's religion. People think, oh, I'm going to be dead, but it's going to be cool because I'll be in heaven and then there's the artist, the, the activist, the person who wants to uh, leave something behind or affect change. Um, so you picked that one. Yeah, big time. I'm like the caveman in the cave scrawling the stick figure because it'll be there longer than I will. And do you feel like there's like a connection between the like dangerous situations you put yourself in and like trying to kind of like combat that like survival sure. thing? I love that, that you asked that, and I think that there is definitely something to that. It's probably not a coincidence that the stunts I was doing were um, life-threatening by design. If not life-threatening, I did everything in my power to make it seem like my life was in grave danger. Yeah, I was mad that I thought I was going to die having failed at life, and I was mad at death, and that was my art. Are there any other assumptions that currently you think people make about you that may or may not be false based on just your kind of public persona? Or My work has always been motivated by the idea that 
a lot of people don't like their job. They're not in a happy marriage. They've got health concerns. Like they've got real problems that are genuinely stressing them out. And I make it my job to be just ridiculous enough that when someone is confronted with my art, that their problems are no longer at the forefront of their mind. You know, like I'm not fixing anybody's problems, but damn right, I'm making them go away temporarily. And so for that, I dubbed myself and my profession. I am a professional distraction therapist. And I think that's noble, you know, like to make it my job to be so fucking crazy that your problems go away when you watch what I do. That's a very loving act. Of course, I'll turn around and make that super self-important and like all about me. When I was attending Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Clown College in 1997, it was a whole apartment building uh, occupied by the 33 clowns in clown college, and then a small group of marine biologists. And I was in this marine biologist's apartment, just drinking, you know, and I told her that we're all gonna die, we're all gonna be dead, but I've got these videos that are gonna live forever. And this marine biologist girl, she just shook her head. She said, you know what, how about this? If I do my job and a fish nibbles on a coral reef that I was able to preserve, then I'm still alive. I live forever. It's just not all about you. So everybody's got their own way to have a legacy and to affect change and, and do wonderful things. Mine is just particularly self-absorbed and ego-driven. <laughs> and that's okay. That's why I got myself tattooed on my back, you know, because everybody's favorite topic of conversation is themselves. And I'm just the one who's cool to come out and celebrate that. Can you talk about the biggest insecurity that you're working on overcoming or maybe recently have worked on? One that I've really made a lot of progress with um, has to do with my pursuit of a career in stand-up comedy. I'm known for jackass, for doing crazy stunts, like Steve-O getting on stage with a microphone to tell you jokes is a departure from what I'm known for. And when I decided to do that, I was not necessarily welcomed into that world, but I just like bullheadedly, just belligerently just wouldn't stop. I, I chose this shirt because this was the flannel that I wore on stage at the taping of my first comedy special. And man, I was so sure that that comedy special was just gonna shut everybody up and prove that, that I belong and that I'm established. And if I'm honest, that first comedy special did more harm to my career than good. Why? Because I wasn't ready. I was five years into doing stand-up and I had this palpable insecurity oozing out of me like on screen. Super grateful for it because it serves as this landmark in time. And the growth between then and where I'm at now is like staggering. 
And I find it so inspirational to have that turd of a comedy special there for comparison to what came after it to show like what can be accomplished when you just will not give up. Like when you just are gonna work at something and gonna get better. And then a few years later, after I taped my second comedy special, paid for it myself, put it together and I brought it to the powers that be at the different streamers and networks. And that was when I was told that my first special had done so badly that it was effectively disqualifying me from selling another one, even though the second one was so much better. Like, did it feel good to be rejected? No. But did I turn around and say, fuck everybody and put it out by myself and, and find success doing that? Yeah. You're like an expert at that. A little bit. I mean, a little bit. Like when, that, like uh, not letting anything. When I get rejected, it hurts my feelings. It pisses me off, and it gets me very motivated. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, like the putting out that second special on my website with a paywall, I did very well with it. At that point, I finally felt like I belonged on a stage performing comedy. I was there in my own right mm-hmm. to tell you about this unbelievable over-the-top thing and it just changed the dynamic and it really helped me uh just move past that insecurity i am officially no longer insecure about getting on stage and performing live comedy and that was take taken 11 years 13 now (laughs) yeah Mm -hmm. wow it's taken 13 years now and still the streamers and the networks don't want my uh project and um, this is the third one is now the third one is now mm-hmm. yeah the stunts are like genuinely life-threatening in like <laughs> multiple scenarios you know what an epidural is yeah i had one when i had her a four inch needle in your spine they inject a drug into your spinal cavity to render you paralyzed from the waist down and i did an epidural foot race a fucking like epidural 50 yard dash in a backyard. <laughs> the whole thing is just the gnarliest thing I ever did. And it like, it's me operating at the pinnacle of my craft. I mean, your perseverance and like unwillingness to be kind of crushed by the machine and the status quo is very inspiring. Well, well thanks, man. I mean, I appreciate that a lot. I really credit the digital revolution for making it possible. A buddy of mine was like, dude, you gotta get on YouTube and YouTube, but man, dude, like I've been like number one in the movies. Like I've had TV shows with my own name and the title. I'm gonna upload YouTube videos. Like that's like such a bummer. But uh, I decided to do it. I learned how to edit and that buddy, bless his heart, I love him so much, taught, taught me how to edit and I put it up and I landed on the map like with a splash. Like I had like 200,000 subscribers in my first 24 hours. Now I control when I make awesome stuff. I'm not waiting for permission from some asshole in a suit Mm -hmm. to green light my project and give me a budget. 
I'm not worried about anything, man. Like, and that, that's the digital revolution, which is double-edged sword because it's democratic. Like, there's no barrier for entry. Anybody can get in. But then again, at the same time, it's so democratic that like every piece of content just has right on there public facing, like how well it performed. And it's so tricky to not get tied to that with your self-esteem, like how your podcast performs the numbers if it's in decline. Like, do you value yourself less? I mean, that's a tough one. Do you, and that's something you struggle with? For sure. Mm-hmm. For sure. I get unreasonably upset when I put something out there and it doesn't perform. That's my livelihood. That's my career. I mean, that really pushes you to believe in yourself and have to turn away from external validation. What, what became very clear to me many years ago is that I've got to find separation between who I am and the persona of Steve-O. Like if I'm gonna, if I'm gonna base my self-worth on how valuable of a commodity Steve-O is in the entertainment industry or the digital landscape, then my future is a sad, miserable one. And so in order for me to be like happy and fulfilled in my later years, I knew I had to figure out how to be in a healthy relationship and find a life partner who can be by my side as I weather the storm of becoming an aging attention whore. <laughs> she takes something off. Yeah. That was very well Can you break, take off the other bracelet thing? Sure. So was there like a rock bottom in your journey that... Um, kind of like led you to this realization that you needed to separate Steve-O, the persona from your the rest of yourself? I would point to the premiere of our second Jackass movie in 2006. That movie was us in our heyday. Like we weren't too old to be doing it. Like we were all like more out of control with drugs and alcohol and sex than like can even be believed we were taking the biggest risks we were doing the craziest stuff and everything just worked it was like just magic and that movie i knew we were never going to beat that and i just felt like here we are we did this it's all downhill from here I remember going to that premiere and feeling like I was at my funeral and like I stepped onto that red carpet and I was just mad at that red carpet because it was like the end. And I pulled out my wiener and peed all over the red carpet. You actually did that? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Like I went into a major spiral. Like I snorted so much drugs at my nose that there's like a big hole in the wall there which I can thread with a shoelace. And that's never gonna change. I'm actually pretty proud of that. So tell us about the spiral that- I mean, okay, uh, I had like major trauma uh, around my mom who had suffered an aneurysm and survived it, but heinously disabled 
both physically and mentally. And she had bed sores and she screamed in pain like almost all day long. And, and it was like uh, suffering that shouldn't exist. I mean, it's, it's the most traumatizing thing that I've ever been through in my life was to witness the suffering of my mom. And I just like felt very angry at any God that would allow that to happen. And that trauma affected me like badly. I really believe my mom would have gotten a big kick out of being on red carpets at movie premieres and stuff like that. There are a lot of things that had my mom and I um, gotten sober together, like to imagine what our relationship would be like, like is uh, something that I'd like I daydream about. Like um, the fact that we never got to share any of that was this really sad. And I know that, I'll say this both ways. I know that she would be proud of me. I know that she is proud of me. So she also struggled with what kind of addiction? Like uh, My mom uh, was a chronic alcoholic, as was every single member of her side of the family. And I, I was just in like a real pit of active addiction and, and trauma and fear and depression. Like it, everything got like tremendously dark. And that's when uh, Johnny Knoxville and the Jackass guys like staged an intervention on me. Like uh, in one week, I um, was arrested for uh, felony cocaine possession and vandalism where um, I pounded a hole in the wall like um, and was like threatening the neighbor like in his apartment. I was arrested, I got, I got evicted. Then um, I sent this mass email saying that, you know, Johnny Knoxville better bring a hot tub so I can jump out of this window into the hot tub and I'm gonna ride a motorcycle and jump out onto the roof of the next building next door. And if you don't come, then I'm jumping anyway. I'm ready to die. And so uh, that email qualified me for um, California's 5150 law. Uh, which meant they could lock me up in a psychiatric ward. And on the advice of uh, the famous Dr. Drew Pinsky, um, Knoxville showed up with like eight guys. As I scheduled my own intervention too. I told him to come, you know, he just didn't bring the hot tub or the cameras. Yeah, I've been clean and sober ever since then. Looking back, do you feel like you have like a sense of like what the pain was that you were like, trying to not feel with all of that behavior and I can't really describe all of the pain um, because there was so much of it but I, I can say that the solution to my problems I found in recovery which were sobriety was front and center like I could not continue with the way that I was going with drugs and alcohol and thank God I grasped onto this world of recovery and was freed of that. Now I've been clean and sober for 15 years. And for that time, for the most part, I haven't been distracted or like wasted time and resources, just being loaded, making mistakes, creating wreckage. Like I've, for the most part, just been 
focused on what I want to accomplish. And what about relationships? Like, like that was a lot harder. That change and like what? Like that, that that was a lot harder. I consider chemical sobriety, like no drugs and alcohol, as kind of undergraduate. And like once I had a foundation in sobriety, I found myself really acting out sexually a lot, and that was something that I had to address. And I kind of considered that grad school. You know, sexual sobriety. What that looked like was、um, at the end of 2010, I started touring the comedy clubs. So I would do this meet and greet after every show, and that meet and greet was a glorified audition to find a partner to act out with that night. And it was just、uh, an endless cycle of shame. But yeah, it got to a point where. I was very clear that if I wanted to be happy in the future, I needed to learn how to be in a healthy relationship, and that what I was doing with all the acting out was not the answer. Had you ever been in a relationship? Like never successfully. What was like the like ten of... months was my best. And were you like faithful, or were you also like struggling with that? Up until I got clean and sober, I was just a piece of shit. After I got clean and sober, I was faithful, but I would just bail on relationships before actually cheating, sabotage the relationship. I developed this pattern where I would meet a woman and become infatuated with her. I'd really think, "Oh, this, she's the greatest!" Oh, well, you know, and, and I would believe that, and I would pour on the charm to, like. Get her to to fall for me, and then like once she fell for me, then like I would exploit her, and and then once I exploited her, then like a light switch, I would like lose interest in her, and then I would just neglect and abandon, you know, just ghost, and like. I would feel so terrible about myself after doing that because not only was I not treating them the way that I want to be treated, I was actually treating them specifically the way I most fear being treated myself. It's just like using people up and throwing them away, and、uh, and I knew exactly what a piece of shit I was. So I promised myself I'm not gonna act out anymore. And I just couldn't. Like I would, no matter how much I promised, like I was just powerless. I just always did it again. So I started seeing a, a, a sex therapist, and that person ultimately recommended that I go into a、um, outpatient sex addict rehab,、mm-hmm. and I did that. And the way it works with sex is that each addict. Will define their own sexual sobriety, meaning that for one sex addict, porn could be perfectly fine. When for another, like serious no go. So you、um, make a list of red light behaviors where anything on that list constitutes a relapse. Then there's like yellow light behaviors where you acknowledge that as slippery and you gotta be really careful, but. And then there's green light behaviors, which are. And do you mind sharing what yours were?、Or? Yeah, I don't mind at all. 
I mean, um, for me, like uh, massage parlors, super red light. Mm-hmm. Being in a strip club was was uh, red light. You know, I had some starts and stops and some stumbles, but but ultimately, when I got out of that sex addict rehab, um, they recommended a period of celibacy between like maybe thirty and ninety days, and I was just like, wow. I ended up going 431 days. And um, I did that because I felt strongly that my mission was to become the man that the love of my life deserves. Mm-hmm. Preemptively, I needed to do that because like, there was no such thing for me as meeting the love of my life because I would have been useless to that person. Wait, I want to hear all that. Can wow. you take off your shoes first? Sure. And then when you started dating again, like, were you kind of freaked out, like, to, like, repeat the pattern? Or yeah. Or trust yourself? I, I, I was, and I had some misfires with relationships. I met Lux on a job where I was basically selling my soul for a promotion of the Super Bowl halftime show, which was sponsored by Papa John's Pizza and Pepsi. And even at my worst, I don't drink fucking soda. <laughs> like, no matter how far I descend into food addiction, soda is red light behavior. I don't fuck with it. And I haven't eaten any meat other than fish for over 15 years. And now I'm going to get out there and promote pepperoni pizza and fucking Pepsi. And uh, it... Like, I sold my soul for $30,000 to do that, to, to, you know, get on board with that. And I showed up to this set to shoot this commercial, and um, Lux was working in the art department. Yeah, we just, like, kind of had some chemistry, and she slid into my uh, my DMs, like, a few days later. And um, we went on a bunch of dates. We, we didn't, like, kiss for over a month, and... You know, before we did anything, like I was like fully transparent and explained to her that I was really coming in with a terrible track record for relationships. And, and uh, you know, we just did everything correctly. The actual commercial that we filmed after being edited was deemed too uh, violent or dangerous. And so they shelved it. So I got away without ever even having to promote Pepsi or Papa John's. And I got the $30,000. And I got the girl. But since then, I don't think I've promoted anything that, uh, that, that I'm not okay with. How long have you been together? We've been together for approaching seven years. We met um, in January of 2017. As long as we've been together, I've never once doubted for a fucking second that I want to be with her. And what do you think that is? Her capacity to love others is off the fucking charts. Can you take off your socks? Sure. My my cool yeah dude socks. <laughs> for me to have gone through these life-threatening, triple X-rated, like completely forbidden stunts. Like, there's no way around the fact that was going to have implications on my relationship. And, like, the, the glue that holds it all together is 
like how my relationship endured like all this stuff like how how lux was like wildly and counterintuitively supportive of certain things and like how totally opposed she was to like other you know it's just like this weird like it's, it's a super fucked up love story it's awesome we'll be right back welcome back to what's underneath masculinity when was the last time that you like made a mistake maybe in your relationship maybe in general or caused like like feel like you cause harm to someone that you love oh like uh, easy i can't even believe that i did this too like what what a fucking shitty thing i've got this editor unbelievably talented dude his name's paul brisky i've been through so many editors it's like kissing frogs and like i'm never gonna find another prince like paul brisky but he has his like music career and he's just got this like wanderlust where he wants to be like anywhere in the world except working on my stuff and so it's like you know at a certain point he's in fucking one country and the next country and i'm having to work with this other editor and i feel like i'm banging my head against the wall because this guy doesn't know what he's doing he's a good editor but he doesn't he's not paul and now i'm making videos up for the youtube channel with this other guy and it's like banging my head against the wall. Paul's not even making the video and he's gonna get the percentage of the AdSense revenue. I'm like, no, I can't do it. And so the next time a commission statement came up from my bookkeeper, I was like, no, no, no. We're, 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 we're hacking it. We're chopping that in half. And, but I didn't tell him. <laughs> no. I, but, I didn't, but I didn't tell Paul. <laughs> just, I was just like, and, and like there were so many times it occurred to me and I just somehow didn't have the balls to tell him. And then finally, like recently, I was like, hey, dude, I did your dirty years. So we went back through and meticulously um, accounted for every dollar that I had docked him. And I made him whole in one lump payment. Did you say I'm sorry or what? How did you? Yeah, well, I mean, you don't want to say I'm sorry in that situation because it's more of an, I want to acknowledge that I was wrong and try to make it right. Yeah. Sorry is a little bit. Right. Right. But yeah, I was like, so yeah, there's a perfect example of where I did something fucked up and uh, I'm, I'm embarrassed that I even did that, but I stepped up and acknowledged it and, and made it right. And I just want to say that I think it's really, um, it's what you said that it's not just saying, like not saying you're sorry isn't enough, that it was really just like the acknowledgement and the action, which I think is really an important thing. I, I'm very conditioned for that, just from like the, like the, in recovery. On our ninth step, where it says we made amends wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. The word amends, it means to fix. Like it's a huge deal because the overwhelming majority of people like will not admit that they were wrong. Right. Even when they're so wrong, it's like their ego just refuses to compromise itself by admitting wrongdoing. And that's so backwards because when you do step up and admit that you were wrong, People respect you, man. And, and people 
Mm-hmm. People like you for that. And, and, and I'm it's really... It's vulnerable. Yeah. It's vulnerable. You're, you're actually making a difference and actually making a connection um, and, and, and creating a healing because of the vulnerability. And most of the time, they're going to meet you halfway, if not the majority of the time. They're going to meet you halfway, and you're going to become mm-hmm. closer and have a better relationship for it. Can you take off your shirt? Yeah, for sure. When do you feel the most vulnerable? I'd say, like, when I confide in Lux or somebody else who I trust that I'm scared of something. You know? It's mm-hmm. not the fear that's vulnerable. It's the Mm -hmm. exposing the fear, the Mm -hmm. acknowledgement of the fear. And I've got all kinds of fear, you know? I mean, probably top of the list would be um, being famous and broke. Like, that's scary as fuck. It's kind of, uh, I think, an understanding that you relinquish your privacy, your autonomy on some level, you become public property. That's the deal. And in exchange for that, you get obscene amounts of wealth, right? Like, so to lose the privacy and the autonomy and not have any wealth, I think, uh, would be the worst of both worlds. And is that a thing you've like actually confronted or just a fear? No, it's, it's, it's just a fear. You'll remember that I said when I was younger, I thought I was going to fail at life and die like imminently. So I really didn't imagine that I was saving for anything. And then when I got clean and sober in 2008, I was terrified to realize that I might actually not be dead soon, that in fact I might be alive for many more decades to come. And I had just gotten done burning down my entire career. Now I was in this world of recovery where everything's about deflating the ego and like how the fuck does being Steve-O from Jackass jive with that? So I didn't even know if I could have a career anymore. My mentality about being on the comedy club circuit was that I had to do it every single week and earn as much money as I possibly could, like while I had the ability to. I didn't want to like take it. E- I didn't want to take it easy, and then years later, be fucked and thought, why didn't I fucking do more shows? I just got into the hustle of like I got to earn and I got to save and I got to set myself up for the future. So it's like the attention whore kid who's like, I'm going to live forever because I've got rad videos is still that same attention whore, but he's just kind of learning from that marine biology person, you know, like taking to heart what that person said that was of tremendous value. So, so can you take off your shirt then? All right. When was the last time you cried? I'm I'm not being macho here. I'm trying to pretend like I don't cry all the time. Okay. (laughs) I'm tempted to ask Lux, when's the last time I cried? Am I allowed to do that? Yeah, sure. Oh, yeah. Cool. (laughs) Hey, baby. Hey, Um. Honey, when was the last time I cried? 
Limbo and burn past. Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah, I remember. My dog Bernie died. I mean, he was old. Just taking care of babies, you know, like, it's so awesome and we love it, but then they, then they pass and that fucking sucks. Yeah. You look so handsome. Oh, thank you, baby. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you look like you just woke up and you're so beautiful. Oh, thank you, baby. Okay. Love you. Right. Love you. <laughs> yeah, so she nailed it. Like, that last, like, real cry was when my dog died. Whenever somebody tells me that they've lost a loved one, I always feel compelled to urge them to grieve selfishly. At a certain point, you have to ask yourself, what would that person want for you? Would they want for you to be in a morass of grief? Or would they want you to grieve appropriately and selfishly and then move on in a way that truly honors their memory? You know, so grieve selfishly, appropriately, efficiently and quickly, I think is the, the way to go. Can you take off your belt? Sure. What is your favorite and least favorite part of your body? I mean, when I was in my 20s, I had a fucking rad body. I spent so much time doing acrobatics and like, I, 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 I could like walk up and down stairs on my hands. So I just had like this, uh, this super tone, like, chiseled muscular physique least favorite um i mean if anything if i have like body insecurity it's just comparing it's comparing to a younger version of me but you're right it's silly you know i didn't get to where i am because i'm a sex symbol like i've never been a pinup <laughs> you know and then lux and i had each other to say stop being mean to the love of my life yeah, she'll be mean to herself and I'll tell her that. Like, you do, you will not treat the love of my life that way. Aww. And uh, she'll say that to me too. Yeah, you can take off your pants. All right. When do you feel the most beautiful slash handsome? I definitely get unreasonably self-conscious when I see photos and like just with wrinkles and gray hair and you know, like, I struggle with that more than I should. Mm -hmm. And I think because my identity is kind of tied up in really adolescence, you know? Like I do like silly childish shit for a living. So I feel like for me, it's not permissible to get old. Mm -hmm. So I feel like while getting old sucks for everybody, it sucks extra hard for fucking Steve-O. With this whole jackass franchise that I became known for with my buddies, like we've gotten older and older, and the question going into each subsequent project has been, are we at a point where it's just kind of creepy to watch? I feel very sensitive to that. Our guy Johnny Knoxville, he insists that the older we get, the funnier it is. And I don't know if I agree with that. But um, for me and all of my career pursuits, continuing to do crazy stuff, I just 
let that become part of the art. And also, like, why not? Yeah, I mean, you know why what I not? Mean? Like, the fame and everything came at that younger time, but that doesn't mean that you can't constantly reinvent. It doesn't mean that that can't keep flourishing. Sure. Yeah, I mean, it, everything's an evolution. And then for you to have to think that you can't be your full self, like, you know, like that sure. it stops at some point, some arbitrary point. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more. Why in your body, in your skin, in your journey, why is it a good place to be? I think that the correct answer, even though it doesn't seem correct, is that just by the virtue of being us and this expression of God and this exercise and experience, that that in and of itself should make being us this great experience. But the forgetfulness about our divinity which we're incarnated with, I think makes it a little tougher. Then we find ourselves in the human experience where we really have the responsibility to assign to our life meaning, to find something that we're passionate about and pursue it to the point where being in our body is the ultimate privilege. I'm profoundly grateful to have found meaning in my life about which I'm passionate and just not just pursuing it, but until the fucking wheels fall off. I mean, great to be in my skin because I don't have any secrets. I like who I am. You know, I'm proud of how I live my life. Yeah, I'm just, I'm just proud of who I've become. I'm proud of the fact that I don't think I really have to apologize for anything. And if that changes, then I'm quick to uh, acknowledge that I'm wrong. Well, that's like freedom. Well, maybe sometimes I'm not that quick. (laughs) (laughs) No, but the way that you share everything so freely is like such a gift. Last question. Uh, What does it mean to you to be man enough? Accountability integrity, honesty, and that's not just male, that's like human. I don't know that I assign any particular value to traits like for men over women. You know, like if you've got integrity, if you're honest and you hold yourself accountable, then no matter who you are, that's the most important thing. That's perfectly beautiful and amazing. And thank you so, so much. And that was What's Underneath with Steve-O. We're very grateful to him for sharing himself so authentically with us. And we hope you found healing on your own journey towards self-acceptance through his story. You can watch the video version of this interview and see our guests remove their layers in all their singular glory by heading to our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash style like you. And that's with the letter U, not the Y-O-U. Each week on our YouTube channel, you can also find a debrief video where Lily and I sit down with Hesu Joe, a licensed therapist from BetterHelp, to unpack the lessons and incredible takeaways from each episode. Speaking of which, we're so grateful to our incredible sponsor, BetterHelp, for supporting us in bringing this series to life. If you're looking to take your mental health journey to the next level and are thinking of starting therapy, you can enjoy 10% off of your first month of therapy at betterhelp.com slash what's underneath. Before we go, remember to follow Man Enough on all social platforms at We Are Man Enough. 
and visit manenough.com slash podcasts for more episodes of What's Underneath Masculinity and the Man Enough podcast. And don't forget to follow at Style Like You on social media as well. We'll be back next week with another amazing guest and can't wait to see you there.